Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Stay tuned for a message from our sponsor at the end of the podcast and visit www.theresidentreview.com for all of our outlines. We'll be continuing our quick hit series, which reviews questions from the last five to eight years of in-service exams. And today we'll be discussing lower extremity. Rachel, do you want to start us off by talking about some of the anatomy? Yes, Hannah, thank you. So today we'll be talking a little bit about the anatomy of the leg by vasculature and innervation. So there are four compartments of the leg, the anterior, the superficial posterior, the deep posterior, and the lateral. The anterior compartment has the tibialis anterior, EDL, and EHL. The anterior compartment also has the anterior tibial artery, which runs with the deep peroneal nerve, and this contributes to first web space sensation. The superficial posterior compartment contains the gastrocnemius, soleus, and plantaris. The deep posterior compartment contains FHL, FDL, and tibialis posterior. The tibial nerve and posterior tibial vessels travel within this compartment as well, and the tibial nerve provides plantar surface innervation. The lateral compartment contains the peroneus longus and brevis, and as well as the superficial peroneal nerve. And remember that the absence of the plantaris tendon occurs in 10 to 15% of patients. The thigh, there's three different compartments, anterior, posterior, and medial. We'll talk a little bit about ABIs or ankle brachial indices or toe brachial indices. These are used to assess perfusion of the lower extremity. For the toe, greater than 0.7 is normal. For the ankle, 0.9 and anything greater is normal. Less than 0.9 is associated with peripheral arterial disease. Less than 0.7, you will have wound healing issues. And less than 0.5 is consistent in patients with rest pain. An ABI less than seven, like I said, predicts wound healing abnormalities postoperatively. ABIs can be falsely elevated in calcified vessels, and you can also assess vascularity or vascular perfusion via toe pressures, and less than 30 milligrams of mercury indicates ischemia and need to attain angiogram prior to soft tissue reconstruction. So the femoral vessels separate into the SFA and the profundus. The profundus has three descending perforators in the thigh that are used for flap harvest. The SFA then becomes the popliteal behind the knee and branches into, into the anterior tibial, posterior tibial, and peroneal artery. To reach the posterior tibial vessels, remember this is between the medial mal and Achilles tendon. The way we can remember this is Tom, Dick, and Nervous Harry. So tibialis tendon, the FDL tendon, the artery, so the posterior tibial artery, the flexor hallucis longus. The lateral calcaneal artery, remember, is a branch of the peroneal artery. The dorsalis pedis artery is between the tibialis anterior and EHL, as well as the anterior tibial artery. And the greater saphenous vein is between the medial mal and the EHL. For evaluation of vascular status, besides perfusion, you can perform an angiography and you can use IV saline to prevent contrast induced nephropathy. And a CTA can be used after reduction or fixation if the patients have warm but pulseless extremities. Venous stasis ulcers are something we see. This will reveal edema, hemosiderin deposition, and clean, shallow, painful ulcers. The first line treatment, remember, is compression like an unaboot and elevation. And then oftentimes we can see venous thrombosis in the lower extremity. A form of this is phlegmasia cerulea dolens, which we were tested on last year. And this is painful blue edema associated with critical illness or unretrieved IVC filters. And the treatment for this is catheter-directed thrombolysis. A lack of treatment of deep vein thrombosis may lead to vascular insufficiency of the lower extremity and gangrene. 
And open techniques like thrombectomy may be used in those with a high bleeding risk. All right, Hannah, why don't you take us a little bit through the innervation of the lower extremity? So we'll start by talking about the common perineal nerve and injury to this nerve leads to foot drop, which is commonly tested. So the common perineal nerve lies between the biceps femoris and the gastroc and courses around the fibular head. The superficial perineal provides lateral leg sensation as well as eversion of the foot through the perineus longus and brevis. The deep perineal nerve supplies the tibialis anterior, EHL, EDL, and it only provides sensory input to the first web space and allows for dorsiflexion of the foot. In terms of common perineal nerve compression, this is the most common compression syndrome in lower extremity. And usually it happens via knee dislocations. And this causes weakness of the anterior compartment muscles and paresthesias of the superior lateral foot. You can also see superficial perineal nerve compression from ankle reduction. There's also a risk with ankle arthroscopy for injury to the superficial perineal nerve. Next, we'll talk about the sural nerve, which supplies sensation to the lateral foot. The sural nerve lies one centimeter posterior to the lateral malleolus between the lateral malleolus and the Achilles. It is a purely sensory nerve and receives contributions from the medial sural nerve as well as the lateral sural nerve, which are from the tibial and perineal nerves respectively. And this can provide up to 30 centimeters of nerve graft. However, you will advise patients, they will not have lateral foot sensation after harvest. The lateral calcaneal nerve uh, supplies sensation to the lateral heel. The medial nerve supplies the gastroc, soleus, plantaris, and popliteus, as well as FDL, tibialis posterior, and FHL. It will branch into the medial and lateral plantar nerves. The tibial nerve is also responsible for plantar sensation and for plantar flexion. The lateral plantar nerve supplies the quadratus planti the, and the ADM and provides sensory innervation to the skin of the fifth toe and lateral fourth toe, as well as the foot intrinsic. The medial plantar nerve supplies sensation to the instep. And then another topic involving the medial plantar nerve is tarsal tunnel syndrome, which is compression of this nerve. And this results in difficulty in flexing the toes and numbness after standing. A few other nerves were tested on. The femoral nerve supplies the anterior thigh quads and responsible for leg extension. The obturator supplies the adductor as well as cutaneous sensation to the middle thigh. We'll next talk about the Gastillo classification, and this is all for open fractures. So in type one, this is a clean wound that is less than one centimeter. In type two, this is a contaminated wound that's greater than one centimeter. However, there is no flaps or avulsions. And then type 3A is also a contaminated wound that is less than 10 centimeters. However, there is often dusted bone or segmental fractures. In type 3B, the main factor that distinguishes this is that there is need for soft tissue coverage. And then in type 3C, there is vascular injury. Rachel, do you want to talk a little bit about compartment syndrome? Remember, compartment syndrome is diagnosed when the compartment pressure exceeds 30 millimeters of mercury or a difference between the compartment pressure and diastolic of less than 20 to 30 millimeters of mercury. The treatment for this is fasciotomy, and this can occur in any form of closed compartment. 
It's often presents after crush injuries and remember the five P's pain, pallor, paresthesia, pulselessness, and paralysis. Next, we'll go over the antibiotic guidelines for low extremity fractures for grade one and two open fractures. A first generation cephalosporin like cefazolin should be administered within three hours of initial injury and be continued for 24 hours after initial injury. Grade three open fractures require coverage with an aminoglycoside in addition to a first generation cephalosporin within three hours of initial injury and antibiotics should be continued for 48 to 72 hours after the initial injury, but no more than 24 hours after a wound closure. If a fracture is at risk of contamination with Clostridium species, such as a farm-related injury, then penicillin should be added to the antibiotic regimen. And then remember, XFIX is the best option for initial fracture stabilization due to the need for multiple debridements. We'll talk a little bit about infection. So in patients with ongoing wounds after ORIF, you need to consider debridement prior to reconstruction, given the risk of non-union and osteomyelitis. MRI is the best imaging modality for osteomyelitis. And internal fixation is not associated with osteomyelitis and gustio 3B fractures. If you do have a patient that has purulent drainage after an open tip fib fracture, then this is consistent with osteomyelitis and you should perform debridement of the bone. Um, prevention measures include removal of dead space and devitalized bone and coverage with vascularized tissue. And then remember you can utilize low pressure lavage for tibial infection and use surgical soap for prevention of osteoblast and osteoplastic function. And the calcaneus is the most common site for osteomyelitis of the foot. And then a little bit about amputations. So contraindications in general for lower extremity replantation include crush mechanism of injury, ischemia time over eight hours, multiple level injury, poor baseline health, and a patient of advanced age. If you have necrotic toes, you can perform a TMA. However, tibial prosthetics are better fitting than ankle prosthetics. Hannah, why don't you start us off with reconstruction of the lower extremity with some general principles and flaps. Thanks, Rachel. So first of all, total contact casting can be performed in patients with clean and slow healing wounds. However, heavily contaminated wounds with no tissue loss require serial debridements with delayed closure. In general, bone grafting is done after soft tissue coverage. And then we're often tested on this. If you have a longstanding wound, these should always be biopsied first to rule out a margillin's ulcer. The ideal timing for soft tissue coverage is within 72 hours. Is delays longer than this time period lead to worse outcomes. And we'll start with reconstruction options in the thigh. So groin wounds can often be reconstructed with a sartorius flap, which is supplied by perforators from the SFA. Other options include the gracilis, the rectus femoris, vastus lateralis, TFL, and rectus abdominis. Remember that the pedicle for the gracilis is the medial circumflex femoral artery from the profundus. And then we all know about the ALT. The pedicle is the lateral femoral circumflex artery, the descending branch. The innervation is the lateral cutaneous nerve of the thigh, and it may be taken with the vastus lateralis. However, this may cause weakness and knee extension. So there are several choices for soft tissue reconstruction. In terms of the ladder for reconstruction, if you're able to perform primary closure, that is ideal. If not, you can also allow the wound to heal via secondary intention and screen graft if able. You can use a biologic matrix for non-flap candidates or small areas. Local flaps are ideal, especially in the upper or medial third. However, they are contraindicated if the flap or pedicle is within the zone of injury. And typically for lower third injuries, you'll use a free flap. And you can go into side if there's single vessel runoff to the leg. 
Again, this is best performed if within 72 hours of injury, but you must make sure that in conjunction with your orthopedic colleagues that the wound is sufficiently debrided and all of the devitalized tissue has been removed. And then in terms of muscle flaps versus fasciocutaneous flaps, muscle flaps fill the dead space better, but fasciocutaneous flaps, of course, have less donor site morbidity. And now we'll go through reconstruction based on the whether the defect is in the upper third, middle third, or lower third. So for upper third defects, we often use the gastroc flap. The pedicle is the medial and lateral sural artery and vein off the popliteal. The innervation is the tibial nerve and had their separate branches to the medial and lateral gastroc. The lateral gastroc is not as preferred because you can injure the common perineal nerve with harvest. And again, this will lead to paresthesias and foot drop. The medial head of the gastroc has a broader and larger belly than the lateral head and reaches farther. Another option for upper third injuries is a bipedical tibialis anterior flap. And this is important for dorsiflexion, so it should not be sacrificed if it can be avoided. However, some function can be preserved when it is raised as a bipedical flap. And then finally, you can consider distally based ALT or vastus lateralis. For the middle third defects, the soleus muscle is very commonly used. This is a bipiniform flap. The medial head is from the posterior tibial, and the lateral head is supplied by the proximal perineal. It is within the, again, the superficial posterior compartment. So the proximal soleus is supplied by the popliteal artery, and the distal soleus is supplied by the perineal artery. A proximally based soleus flap can be carried to a point five centimeters proximal to its tendinous insertion. And you can also use a reverse soleus from the posterior tibial for more distal defects. The flexor digitorum longus can be used for smaller middle third defects, as well as the extensor digitorum longus. And this is supplied by the anterior tibial artery, and again, is for small wounds. So now for lower third defects, commonly we can use the reverse sural flap. And the landmarks for this flap are the lesser saphenous vein and sural nerve and should bisect the cutaneous pedicle. The blood supply is the medial superficial sural artery from the perineal artery and has minimal posterior tibial perforators if it is reversed. The lesser saphenous vein also provides blood supply to this flap. The point of pivot is five centimeters above the lateral malleolus and indications for use of this flap include an exposed Achilles. Partial flap loss occurs commonly, mainly due to a narrow pedicle so it's important to maintain the mesentery between the sural nerve and the deep fascia. You can perform this in delayed fashion by dividing the proximal lesser saphenous vein, and another delay is raising and setting back or raising the distal portion and leaving the proximal. And venous insufficiency adds the most complication risk uh, for use of this flap. A further option is a propeller flap. And this is an unequal length island fasciocutaneous flap based on a single perforator that is off center, but inside of the skin island. The posterior tibial artery perforator propeller flap, the vessel comes between the soleus and the flexor digitorum longus. I know we were asked that recently. So for lateral defects, you'll use perforators from the perineal artery. And for medial defects, you can use perforators from the uh, posterior tibial artery. Thanks, Hannah. Just a couple things to just remember. So we were recently tested on complications after a gastroc harvest. And remember that the gastrocnemius muscles provide plantar 
flexion. And so that was the answer choice for that. And then we're also tested on probably four to five years ago, it was a middle third anterior wound. And the answer was a keystone flap. And so always keep that in the back of your mind. You can use a keystone flap from the anterior tibial perforators for a small middle third defect. Great. Thank you, Rachel. And then we'll move on to talking about calcaneal defects. And we are mainly tested on the medial plantar flap. And this is from the medial plantar nerve and artery. The pedicle of the medial plantar artery is off the posterior tibial between the, the abductor hallucis and flexor digitorum brevis. And that's a, a common question on the in-service. And the nerve is the medial plantar nerve, which is a branch of the tibial nerve. You can also use the dorsalis pedis flap and innervation for, to this flap is the superficial perineal nerve. And this is used in dorsal, distal foot defect or the anterior ankle defects. And then of course, free flaps, another option. Rachel, do you want to take us through some lower extremity flaps? Sure. Thank you, Hannah. So she mentioned most of the flaps. We'll talk a little bit about the free fib because it can come up in the lower extremity portion of our test, but remember it's supplied by the perineal artery. Risks include damage to the perineal and posterior tibial nerve. And remember that you need to leave at least six centimeters distally and proximally for stabilization of the ankle. If you do have patients with coronary artery disease or diabetes, cook dopplers are sufficient for a preoperative exam and a leg prior to harvesting a free fib. So no CTA is needed. That was on our test. And then FHL can be injured in the deep posterior compartment with harvest of this flap. And this results in toe clawing. And we have been tested on that. The toe to thumb flap, the pedicle for this comes from the first dorsal metatarsal from the dorsalis pedis artery, two thirds of the time, but one third of the time it does come from the deep plantar artery. And then remember, if you have a traumatic amputation with preserved parts, this can be covered with fillet of foot flaps, and these will be supplied by the dorsalis pedis or posterior tibial, and then tibial nerve will supply sensation for that. For bony reconstruction, less than six centimeters, you can perform a non-vascularized bone graft or limb shortening for greater than six centimeters, you want to perform either distraction via the Lizarov technique or a free osseous flap. So you'll need vascularized bone graft for this. Mascalay is an option, although it does require two procedures. That's typically not the answer choice on our exam. And then if you have destabilization of a weight bearing extremity, you can perform the Capana technique, which is a free flap plus an allograft. Distraction osteogenesis is an option, but that's one millimeter a day. So if you have large bony injuries, that can start take up to a year to reconstruct. So that's typically not a first option. Remember, like I said, Capana technique is a free vascularized graft with bone allograft for segmental reconstruction of the lower extremity. And it's frequently used after sarcoma resection. If you shorten the bone of the lower extremity greater than 10 centimeters, you will obviously have an abnormal gait. For vascular reconstruction, if you have greater than 5.5 centimeter defect, you need an interposition vein grafting. So you don't wanna use prosthetic grafting for this. And you obviously cannot uh, perform primary repair. Now, if it's less than that, you can attempt to free up the ends and do a primary repair. But for that, that is the definitive link for a interposition vein graft. In a cold leg, remember, you should temporarily shunt first, followed by bony stabilization, and then you perform your vascular repair. And then a distal venous arterialization bypass. This is an alternative for limb salvage and severe ischemia and severe AVIs. And this is a distal bypass that's performed to the venous vessels of the foot using a vein graft. And that's also performed in the upper extremity for severe ischemia. Nerve reconstruction. We've talked a little bit about this in our hand nerves, but primary repair should be obtained if possible, but you cannot do a primary repair if the defect is greater than a centimeter. If it's less than three centimeters, you can use a conduit. 
If it's three to 11 centimeters and you wanna use an autologous cable graft with an epidural repair, and then greater than 12 centimeters, no recovery is expected for the lower extremity. So you wanna keep that in mind. If a nerve undergoes significant crush and is echomotic, you wanna wait three weeks before you perform an EMG and then perform it again at three months. If there are fibrillations present, then you wanna perform a nerve repair. If the nerve is transected, then the viable ends will not be stable until seven to 10 days. Perineal nerve palsy can lead to foot drop and paresthesia after ORIF of the tibia, supracondylar femoral fractures or knee dislocations. Keep that in mind. Remember, wait two to three months with EMG testing. Then you want to perform a nerve decompression and neurolysis if it's in continuity or a repair if it's transected. And then salvage operations. So if you've had a nerve paresis for a long period of time and you have death of your motor end plates, you can perform a tendon transfer or an orthrodesis. And so what we do a lot is tibialis posterior to anterior tendon grafting to restore dorsiflexion of the foot. And we have been tested on that. And then indications for an amputation. And remember an insensate foot is no longer an indication for an amputation. We were tested on that several years ago. If you have greater than two of these, can, you can consider an amputation. So if it involves three or more fascial compartments, if you have two or more vessels injured, if you have a failed vascular reconstruction, a cold foot, a severe crush injury or muscle loss, and if you have an elderly patient and poor functional status. And remember, if you perform a BKA, you need 14 centimeters of stump length for a prosthetic fit. All right, Hannah, why don't you finish us up with some miscellaneous? Okay, so for our miscellaneous section today, a pyoderma gangrenosum. This looks like a large non-healing ulcer the cultures will be negative. There is no evidence of malignancy and debridements will only result in a larger wound with no healing. And this is often found with other autoimmune diseases. And this is treated with systemic steroids. If there is a suspected nerve injury immediately after flap dissection, the answer will be to return to the operating room for exploration and repair. And then congenital equinovirus or clubfoot you perform surgical correction by Elizarov or with acute correction and release of the contracted posterior and medial elements. And you can use tissue expansion if you have inadequate soft tissue. For latissimus dorsi donor site for lower extremity reconstruction, you will have loss of motion and shoulder weakness. And these are most prevalent in the early postoperative period and generally return to baseline at one year. All right, I think that about covers lower extremity. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed it. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of our topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.